From the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce, I'm Jeremy Henderson. And I'm Christy Gillenwater, and this is Chattanooga Works. I'm the creative director for the Chattanooga Chamber of Commerce. And I'm the president and CEO of the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce. And we're trying something a little different here. We want to inform you guys about what it is the Chamber does and how we interact with the community on a day-to-day basis. And yes, we've been around 130 years impacting the community, and we still are today, not only in Chattanooga, but in Hamilton County as well. So for the next few episodes, we're going to sort of break things down into five different formats to explain all the different ways the Chamber works for you. First of all, there's Chamber Champions. Chamber members come in all shapes and sizes from all walks of life. We think they have interesting stories to tell, and we'll be using this podcast to tell those stories to you. Next up, we have Start Me Up. Chattanooga has become a hotbed of startup activity. Maybe it's our fast internet. Maybe it's our quality of life. We'll talk to a panel of experts on the local entrepreneurial ecosystem, and we'll tell stories of exciting founders and the companies they're trying to start up right here in Chattanooga and Hamilton County. Then we've got How I Made It. Everyone could use some career advice. With this format, we'll bring in a young professional guest host to interview an established business leader. We'll see what we can learn from their years of experience and how you can apply those lessons to your own work. And then we'll have an episode, Now Hiring. We all know talent is on the forefront of everyone's mind. And hiring is one of the most time-consuming, expensive, and important tasks a company can undertake. We'll cover a wide range of topics around the world of HR and hiring practices. Speaking of hiring, our final format will be Chattanooga's Got Talent. Every business needs employees to operate. Talent development is key to ensuring that the local business community continues to prosper and grow. From education to career placement and second chances, we'll look at this topic from every angle. And that's how we're sort of going to break things up for these first few episodes. We look forward to talking to you guys and sharing what it is we do. And we look forward to engaging you, our members, our community, and the great work of not only our our team, but our plethora of volunteers and the businesses that comprise of Chattanooga and Hamilton County and really help make our community tick. Chattanooga is a city that loves color. Walking through the urban center, you could pass any one of a dozen murals. Massive splashes of color amidst the asphalt, steel, and glass of the built environment. So perhaps it's fitting that Kath Shaw chose the name for her urban garden center from a mural. One of my hobbies is photographing murals, primarily in urban areas. And my favorite mural is about bees that are on a, uh, they're all on unicycles. And so when I was talking to a friend about this business, I said, well, if, you know, and we were kind of having two conversations. One was about these murals and another was about the name for the business. I said, no, it'd be like all the bees would be pedaling together on one bicycle, like a community. And so I was like, you know, bees on a bicycle. And I'm like, oh, that really has a ring to it. And so I quickly checked to make sure the dot-com was available and all the practical social media stuff. Uh, which you do in business today. Sure. And um, got that in order. Finding color in unexpected places is a guiding principle for bees on a bicycle. The Urban Garden Center caters to people with limited space and experience. The type of garden center, if I wanted to do a garden center, 
um, that I wanted to do is one where people could um, could do a whole microcosm per se of a garden all in one place. And so you might have a you know for those of you listening quotation figures a tree <laughs> a boulder a little stream but all in miniature in the in a planter that would be on your balcony. And so. I, I used to live in, in downtown D.C., and our garden was really, really small. And so how can I have a lot but in a very small space? And how can people be introduced to gardening in a way that's really um, a positive experience? Um, we were about to do a series online as well about plant killing. And gardeners that have been gardening for a long time have killed a lot of plants. You know, I've killed, I, I don't know how many plants. Um, but gardeners that you can, um, it's kind of like learning to ride a horse, you know, eventually you're going to fall off or he's going to buck you off or, or both. Um, so people have ridden horses for a long, long time have probably landed on the ground once or twice. It's just part of the territory. Well, with gardening, it's, it's, it's also part of the territory that plants, you know, every, it, it's just like, um, it's just like children. If you have half a dozen kids, not all of them are going to be lawyers and doctors, you know, you're going to have one that, that is, is, you know, they're not all going to be consistently the same is the point that I'm trying to make. So it's like that with plants as well. As humans, we live in a constant negotiation between the built and the natural world. Kath believes that how we view the natural world around us is important. Even a small change in perspective can make a big difference. We recently rearranged um, bees, and we typically in the past had a lot of merchandise right here, but we rearranged and the reason why we did that is to create a workspace for us. And so we're being commissioned for all sorts of different things. Uh, for example, last week I did a piece um, for a client, his name is Michael, and he'd received an arrangement when a friend died. And so months later, every time he looked at that arrangement, it reminded him in a bad way of what had occurred. And so he's like, how can I have a reboot with this? And so he brought in the whole kit and caboodle. It was in a typical plastic thing that you get from a florist, which, you know, they do that because they're inexpensive and you can put it all together in, in a cost-effective way. He's like, I want to do this in a more long-term way. And he says, you know, just give it a reboot. And so we kept some of the old. We, we um, added some new. And we most um, specifically, we did a new pot. Um, that was bright and colorful and more in keeping with his friend. And so we're getting commission work like that all the time. We are joined today by Kath Shaw with Bees on a Bicycle. Um, welcome, Kath. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Um, we heard earlier about um, sort of what, what Bees is, um, but could, could you sort of run that down for us? Absolutely. Bees on a Bicycle is... Well, the way I describe it on, on Facebook is it's an oasis in the middle of the city where seasoned gardeners can find unusual plants that aren't stocked elsewhere, or new gardeners can find things that um, will be successes for, for venture gardeners, you know, people that are just venturing out and for the first time and trying something new. Okay. And so would you say you're trying to bring in uh, people in sort of an urban environment who maybe have been either intimidated or feel like they they don't have the space for gardening? 
Yes. Um, I have a lot of clients like that. I have folks that have killed plants and they're like, please don't let me kill another one. And so Mm -hmm. we, you know, tips and techniques ensue, right? Mm -hmm. And so then there's also the folks that um, have moved into a condo recently. They're downsizing or they're moving downtown and they used to be have a big yard, but they want to grow something on their patio or balcony. And so container gardening is a big thing for us. We actually have a whole section of, of uh, shrubs that are, are ideal for containers because they're a little smaller. They, they would look kind of dinky and ridiculous in front of a house, but they look perfect like a miniature tree or a shrub in a container. And they provide a good backdrop to some of the flowers and fun, funner seasonal sort of things that would also go in a container. Okay. And that's one of the things um, I was mentioning. My bonus daughter has stopped in, and um, so we've we're now in a basically condo, uh, townhome, if you will. And so it's been different, you know, moving from you know a situation where you had all those plants, et cetera. So I obviously need to stop by. But you're right; it can be very intimidating. I mean, folks like myself, you know, busy lives, and you know, will I remember to water that plant? Will I remember to tend to it? And that's what's interesting about your varieties. You have some that that need a little more tending, and some that don't. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think when people are making transitions, also their their lives are in flux and they, they want to have um, a positive experience. And frankly, it's really easy to have a positive experience in a garden. And also one of the things I tell people, people when, that are um, not, not so successful and they talk about it, I said, listen, do you eat salad? And they nod, even if they don't, because they want to pr- you know, pretend they eat greens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. It's like, do you eat lettuce? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, then you know, plants are consumed, and mm-hmm. and and some some of them make it, and some of them don't. And and so it's just like if you had twelve brothers and sisters, not all of them are going to go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be some that that are going to do different things, like run plant stores, for example. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> and so um, there's there's different ways of looking at success, and different ways mm-hmm. of having relationships with plants, and being okay with the fact that we consume plants. We, we do it for our sustenance, for our bodies, and for mm-hmm. our health. And so why not do that in the garden? If, if three of them make it and one of them doesn't, okay, well, then buy another one. And, you know, and, and also the price points are such that it's not, it's not like a $50 decision. It's a, yes. it's a lesser price point. So it's like I, I tell people, hey, think about it like an order of fries at, at a restaurant. You know, it's it, it's an experience, and 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 that sort of experience is a short one, whereas your plant might be on your balcony for three or four months, or if it's a perennial, for longer. And that's the interesting thing about plants is yes, whether you decide to consume them or just visually enjoy them. I mean, one of the things that I love so much about Chattanooga, and we were talking about how much rain we've had and how um, you know the, the the colors are so abundant right now. But I think what greenery and what plants bring to you. I mean, if you walk around Chattanooga. It's like, think about what the outside brings to you in terms of delight and appreciation for our city. Then if you bring that inside of your home, uh, you're right. It just kind of lightens up the home. It personalizes it as it, it softens it. When I first, um, I had the opportunity before we moved to Chattanooga to have a three-month job. So I was like, what am I going to do for three months? I'd been consulting and I was um, sunsetting that business and and decided that I would start something new in Chattanooga, but I wanted mm-hmm. to keep busy for the three months before we moved here, right? So I went on Craigslist and I was like, maybe I can find some temp work or something like that. And there was a big box store that I worked in um, and in the garden center. And when they interviewed me for that position, 
they tried to give me a management position, which I turned down. I was like, no, I want to be with the plants. I want to just be out on the floor with all the kids. It was a college town, just like this one is. And so out I went and with all the, the kids that were 20 years younger than me. So anyway, um, to make a long story short, I ended up working many, many hours there and um, consulting in a light way with um, some of the people that grew plants for that big box store. And so one of the things in the interview that I'll never forget, he, he looked at me, he's like, you know, Kath, people don't get good and angry and then go buy a rose bush. They just, you know, you don't have those kind of emotions. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great. You know, so people come into a garden store and, and they're just, they have a different way of looking at things yes. because of the environment. And also, mm-hmm. frankly, plants give off. Um, it depends what your belief systems are. But many people believe that plants give off um, energy and that sort of thing. That, that puts us in a positive way. And so I found it helpful. Kat, you might talk a little bit about not only, you know, personal as residents, but also for businesses, for businesses to think intentionally about plants and, and how that can help, you know, establish a brand for their business, right? And how that those plants can help take their brand to the next level. Well, it's funny that it's, we haven't talked that much, but I, my agency um, in DC specialized in branding. So mm-hmm. that's right in my that's wheelhouse talking about branding. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, so think about it. Like if you have planters in front of your business, it sends off a different vibe than if you have, um, I don't know, um, a, a statue. Um, it's just a different sort of way of going about it. There's art, art appreciation, certainly, as well. And there's certain ways that you can use those together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say having a planter that you water and care for sends off a different message. It's kind of like a, a dish of water for, for a dog. Um, it sends off the message initially that you're a dog-friendly business, but also that you might be into different things than certain other corporations that are into different agendas. Um, mm-hmm. And so Planter, yeah, definitely can do that. We're, we're starting to do some uh, commission work. Um, mm. Folks on Lookout Mountain want me to do various uh, planters for their homes. And now we're starting to do them for their businesses as well. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is businesses um, I'm doing, you wouldn't think they wouldn't want herbs, but we're doing herb pots because they're aromatic and people, you know, you, you have to harvest them eventually and you can give them to various employees and that sort of thing. So it's kind of a giving way of being with your employees. And so one kind of folds into the next. Well, it's a great thing to teach our youth too, right? Appreciation. I mean, I always love when schools or after school programs work on you're bringing youth into gardening and the appreciation for that as well, right? Totally, totally. When the little ones come into Bees on a Bicycle, they I, one of the things I do with the moms, I'd say, I, first of all, I always ask because you never know who's allergic to what. And so the moms kind of guide me with that. But um, one of the things I do is have them rub a, a leaf of sage or rub their hands on mint and then smell their hands. And because that scent is so powerful and kids really react to scent so much more vividly than we adults that are a little bit more sage. Yes. <laughs> to use sage yeah. in a different way, you know, the second meaning of sage. Right. But um, the kids really react to the scent and they, they love it. You can see mm-hmm. their faces light up because they're experiencing the world in a different way that they normally don't have. I mean, we certainly have scratch and sniff books, at least we mm-hmm. used to. Um, mm-hmm. But so kids like that. And, it, and it's a fun way to expose them to gardening. Well, and you offer classes for all ages, correct? 
Primarily, they're adult-based classes, but when people call and ask, hey, can I bring my child, I, I hardly ever say no, because usually if they're going to ask me, they're pretty conscious of, of introducing their child into an adult-based learning situation. And usually, you know, I don't want them to drop their kid off, because that's not my role um, to, to um, figure out what to do with their child for two hours. Um, but typically, for example, our seed starting workshop, um, which was way back in mid-February, I guess, um, there are there are two kids. And one of the things that we did is we had everybody in the room go around and talk about the seeds that they had selected to put in their little greenhouses. And the parents chose the child to present the seeds that they'd picked together. And it gave those kids a public, a public speaking opportunity in front of adults. And it was just this really great thing to watch. We took a ton of pictures. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah, I used to teach school. And so, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, you kind of wait for those moments of learning. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. I know local plants um, are, are an important part of, of Bees on a Bicycle, uh, making sure we're, we're using native plants. Um, Could you speak a little bit about why that is important to you and why you think it's important for people who are gardening around here to to take that into consideration? Sure. Um, Native plants that are native to Tennessee or native to Southeast United States. One of the things, just we were talking about uh, gardening success earlier. One of the things that and reasons why I stock them is they they lead towards success. By nature, they are easier to take care of. It wasn't like 3,000 years ago with, with a native that's been in Tennessee for thousands and thousands of years growing, you know, doing its thing. It wasn't like 3,000 years ago somebody was standing there with, with a pesticide making sure it survived. And so when I worked at a big box store, I saw that there was area for plants and there was an equal square footage of area for chemicals. And I noticed when I walked in that area for chemicals, the rims of my eyes would start stinging. And it just made me feel badly, you know, physically. And so I was like, what can I do as a shopkeeper? What can I do to be new to Chattanooga and bring something that I think would be useful, both for my yard, but then I'm making buying decisions for other people because there's hundreds of customers at Bees. And so that's when I started stocking natives. And and tell, let me tell you, it's a bit of a challenge. The reason why a lot of garden centers probably don't stock them is because literally you're selling a root ball with a stick sticking out of it. It is not a pretty object mm-hmm. when you're selling it. And up until about a month or two ago or a month and a half ago, it was still a stick sticking out of it because it hadn't come out of the dormancy season because natives are perennial. They come back year after year after year as opposed to annuals, which we're used to that kind of have a lot of bling. Um, and a lot of a lot of annuals are sold because they they've got a lot of color. But let me tell you, the the natives have wonderful color and wonderful smells, and we all have memories of going to our grandma's house and having certain bushes that smelled a certain way. For example, gardenias. People smell the gardenias that I've got at bees. And they're like, oh, my gosh, my grandma used to have one of these. And then they buy one for their home in memory. Because, and that scent memory goes way back. And so guiding people through that experience is really, it's, it's an unusual way to make a living. And so it, it's heartening for me. It really is. 
Well, Kat, it's interesting thinking about, you know, you know we probably have a, a lot of listeners who are entrepreneurs, right? I mean, who risk a lot to open, you know, the doors of a business in this community. Well, and I, I do want to say, I think I think it was a pretty savvy location decision on your part, um, simply because having been down there, uh, when you drive down uh, that area of town, uh, Bison Bicycle stands out, you know, it, it it doesn't look quite like anything else in that area. <laughs> which um, is great. Yeah, yes. which, which is amazing. Um, and, and I know, you know, Chattanooga is a very green city mm-hmm. um, c- compared to a lot of others. D- did any of that factor into your your decision to, to open a, a garden center here? My decision about Chattanooga came when we chose this as our home. We, my husband, uh, Graham Drew Love, he is a mathematician, and he's very data-driven. So we did a four-and-a-half-year search. I kid you not, because he was managing the health data for uh, Virginia at the time. And so he wanted to keep that position and learn from it and, and, and did quite well there. But now he's down here at Blue Cross, and, and they're you know, doing their thing with health data over there. And so, but during that time, we took weekend and four-day trips here, there, and everywhere. We flew and drove to a lot of cities Chattanooga's size, and we chose Chattanooga quite intentionally. Absolutely. Well, I think your story is inspirational. It's inspirational for others, you know, because again, um, you know, I think sometimes a lot of times when people think about business, they think, oh, you know, they don't understand the risk. They don't understand that so many of our businesses, you know, well over 80% have fewer than 25 employees. I mean, these are small businesses, often less than 10, less than five, right? And have to start from somewhere and often start in a garage or in, right, in a yard. Um, they don't appreciate the journey always because, you know, the stories aren't told. And that's where I think your story is inspirational for others around, you know, taking that risk and and that leap of faith and then making the most of it. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. Absolutely. We were talking before this, we started this broadcast um, about just the in-between time. And one of the things that I did, I was hired as a writer for a large uh, pseudo-government, let's just leave it plain, um, pseudo-government mortgage and a company um, that's based in D.C. And um, I did a lot of writing for them, uh, technical writing for them, and very quickly found out that that was not a good match. But I learned there that I was a good writer. And I did a lot of writing when I worked for a professional association um, of architects in D.C. And, I, and I've brought that love of writing to um, talking about risk and talking about reward. And, and it isn't necessarily a monetary reward. It, it, there's, um, and so as a result, Instagram has just kind of blown up. That a lot of people follow me on Instagram. People come in, they're like, I've been reading your stuff for two months and I had to just come down here. And you can see them like seeing it all in three dimensions as opposed to on their phone and trying to like absorb it all, right? Um, but I, I really have enjoyed that. And so this is a big, a big announcement on my part. I have decided to write a book. Oh, you have. Wow. Yeah, and and I people have encouraged me to write a memoir because my life has been not the typical bear, right? <laughs> I'm not the typical bear in the woods. But I I'm kind of like my life has had a lot of grief and a lot of sadness and I was like I don't want to write about that. I just don't. But in many ways coming to Chattanooga has been a, a brand new chapter mm-hmm. and this business has been 
so different. And we were talking earlier about flow. And there's been things that have happened, like the, like the prayer thing with Barbara, that make really great vignettes and stories. And I, people like Kath, you've got to put these all together and string them together somehow. And so I thought I'd do this in year three, four, or five, somewhere later. And I just talked to somebody, and they're like, no, Kath, you need to do this now. Hmm. And so when it gets really, really, really hot... <laughs> <laughs> that's your time and and there's less people buying plants um that yes. might be a time for me to put pen to paper and start you yes. know figuring that out and uh so yeah i've told my husband and i've told the two of you and i guess after wow. this podcast other people will know too yes. yeah, other people i'm gonna take credit for that breaking, <laughs> breaking exclusive news, news right there here okay thank you so much for being here that that was great a great story another great story <laughs> I appreciate that. And thank you for having me. I've I've really enjoyed being part of the chamber and and um getting to know everybody. It's been it's a great group of people and and uh deserves all the awards that you all have received. Thank you. Group. All right. Uh we've been talking with Kath Shaw with Bees on a Bicycle um and we will be back shortly. Thank you. My name is Jason Bowers. I am the co-owner of the Bitter Alibi. Much like their clientele and their community, the Bitter Alibi is constantly changing. They don't much like labels here, so it can be hard to pin them down. The Bitter Alibi has uh, evolved from a lot of different things, but it started as just a basement bar, uh, predominantly just American craft beer, and it's kind of a cool place, about 40 seats to kind of hang out with some friends. Um, It has evolved into a full-service restaurant, serving brunch on the weekends and lunch throughout the week and open till midnight at 2 a.m. And now it includes a cocktail lounge up on the third floor called The Fix. Part of the Big Nine district along the MLK corridor, the Bitter Alibi sits right across from the Bessie Smith Cultural Center. The neighborhood has changed a lot, and so has the bar. It's a kind of a different place for different people. It doesn't necessarily hit on one, one group. Uh, I would say our, most of our clientele is probably mid-20s to mid-30s, kind of that area, but... We see that change all the time. Sometimes you can come in here on a brunch and there's not anybody under 40. So it's, you know, just you never really know who's coming. So, so you have to cater to a pretty diverse crowd then. Yeah. Is that it, sort of what shaped the different levels it did. in a way? Yeah, I think so. Because I think we we knew in just the basement it was not going to be for everybody. And we didn't open up for lunch our first year because we were like, nobody wants to be in a cubicle office and then come into a dark basement like they they want to be in a lighter place uh if they're you know working downtown so that's when we we moved the second floor started doing uh lunch and kind of a brunch menu all week and so we were just like we need to cater towards people who are here during the daytime and there wasn't much going on mlk four years ago so we were even at night we were it was still a very destination place people were driving to come here and and to jj's the music venue around the corner uh, for the late night, and that was about it around here as far as after 9 p.m. So, yeah, we've had to cater to different people and also kind of just change our way of service, too, where it was, like, maybe even, like, two lakhs in the beginning, just like, oh, there are just a bunch of our friends here getting beer, too. Like, okay, people are expecting table service. They want an appetizer and to have entrees and hang out and uh, and kind of be waited on better so yeah so for different days and 
different folks kind of expect different things. So we've tried to pivot in a good way without losing kind of the heart that is Bitter Alibi has been. No business succeeds alone. They can fail alone, but a business can only grow as a part of its community. MLK is in the last few years, and we've just seen more and more people starting businesses, moving here. Just, I mean, I think the rest of Chattanooga has seen that too, but MLK specifically for us is, uh, we've just seen a lot more people willing to play ball with each other too. I mean, even some of these old, you know, third generation businesses, um, Uncle Larry's and Mimo's Chuck Wieners and stuff, like they'll, they are, we're, we're kind of creating those relationships and like trying to make sure that MLK keeps a lot of its good history and a lot of it's, yeah, just like the story that is MLK, that we can kind of just be a part of that without saying like, oh, we're, this is all new now, this is all different, because it's really, there are new parts of it, but really there's some awesome history here. We are joined now by Jason Bowers, co-owner of The Bitter Alibi. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jason, you know, as you know, this is such a rich, vibrant place to have a business, but it's challenging too, right? I mean, you're in the restaurant business. I was just sharing with Jason before the show that my husband and I visited his his wonderful uh, place, Bitter um, Alibi, on Saturday, and I loved it. We had an amazing, it was kind of a late breakfast, if you will, biked in, and you just have a great vibe, a great ambiance. I mean, how did you come up with the idea? Like, What led you to starting a business here in Chattanooga? Well, I have been in Chattanooga uh, for 13 years now um, and kind of been working in the restaurant business since I got here. I've been in food service since 14, 15 years old, but that was mainly college cafeterias and summer camps and washing dishes and that thing, uh, those type of things. But um, in Chattanooga, I went to college to be a teacher uh, and to kind of supplement that income, the bartending and serving business was pretty lucrative, especially uh, it worked with the nights and weekends that teachers get off. So I started uh, mainly just kind of learning how to be a great server and great bartender, but never really was interested in the ownership piece because I had my heart set on teaching. But when I really got involved in Chattanooga and invested in kind of the culture, restaurant culture, Um, I realized that there really was a market that wasn't completely being tapped into. Um, And so when Matt and I, my uh, business partner, Matt Scudleric, we had an opportunity to take over uh, the basement space of Bitter Alibi, which is about 35, 40 seats, seven and a half foot ceilings, um, really just a small place. We decided we have to kind of jump onto this. It's, uh, it wasn't something we wanted to pass up. So we got into it. Good for you. And I know just being down there, one of the things, uh, so my husband and I are in the restaurant business from, you know, again, we just moved to Chattanooga four months ago. Um, so I was able to be a part of the chamber here. But, um, you know, so we're in the restaurant business and we're looking at the space and the utilization of the space. And we said, this is brilliant. I mean, speakeasy kind of feel, but the number of seats, I think we counted about 50, right? Mm-hmm. In the basement. And we said, oh my gosh, in our restaurant, it would take three times that size to fit. Right. Like, we just love the way you've crafted the space and and to the board games you can play, to to the music, um, the, the feel and the flavor of your server team, your service, the customer service. Just, I, I thought it was all just brilliantly executed. Awesome. Well, I'm, I, I'm really glad to hear that. We 
we started, it was just Matt, um, myself, and one other guy. Uh, and all of the service was done in that basement. So there wasn't the second or third floor. It was, it was empty. We honestly didn't have enough money to rent the entire building out. So we rented out the basement and where the kind of back bar areas where the, where the draft beer is and all that, that used to be our kitchen. So we had like kind of a small divider that divided kind of a bar top into our kitchen in quotes um, that had a little panini press, some crock pots, a little cooler. Um, and we realized in the first week that that really wasn't going to cut it, that people were actually coming to eat because there wasn't a lot of uh, good late night grub. And we weren't doing a bunch of fried food. We were doing like really nice sandwiches uh, with slow cooked chicken and pork and beef and then doing some really nice veggie sandwiches with fresh sides. So people were kind of interested in um, kind of our flavors, but also like, oh, okay, I can get off work, come here, have a few beers and not feel like I'm eating French fries and burgers and things like that really late at night. So we really utilized even more of that space in the beginning because we had to do food if we really wanted to keep people there. We knew that just one or two beers a person a night wasn't going to cut it for us. We we wanted to kind of have people stay there more and more and also make it a place where people could meet and not feel like they just could have a beer and then go somewhere else but stick around with us. So why don't you sort of sum up the bitter alibi for us if you can. Yeah. It's a tough it's a tough place to sum up <laughs> uh, because currently we're, we're on four years. Um, we started four years ago. We opened in July. Um, July 3rd. So it'll be four years in July that we've been open. Um, It started as a basement bar and then a year later opened up as a brunch restaurant during the day that went back into the basement. And then two years ago, we opened up the cocktail lounge on the third floor um, that kind of plays to everybody. We realized that being beer only wasn't going to cut it. Um, And we also had some skills in in the room that were like, these guys can make really good cocktails. And the cocktail scene was picking up in Chattanooga. So Overall, Bitter Alibi has been many different things, but currently it is a three-story building with two patios, an alleyway uh, that serves really dynamite food. Asian and kind of Latin flavors kind of take over most of the menu, but then we have some pretty standard kind of, you know, American burger fare and for brunch you can get bacon and eggs and toast if you really want it. But we, you know, we have biscuits and gravy, but we do chorizo gravy instead of your regular sausage gravy. Which and, is very good, yeah, I might it's, say. It's too good, I really... <laughs> yes. I don't think I've had it in a few weeks or months, really, because I, it's just uh, kind of addicting. But um, So, I don't know. The Bitter Alibi can... It's different things for different people. Some people just know our brunch. Some people just know us as a spot to go after work after 10 p.m. Um, but overall, it's just kind of a unique take on a restaurant and bar setting with really casual. It's a really casual environment, um, but we don't take service and we don't take our food lightly. We don't, we really try to hone in on making great recipes, both in the cocktail world and the, and the food world. And I found, Jason, as I was there, you have a very eclectic crowd, and, and I appreciate that. You know, yes, you're somewhat close to UTC's campus, but uh, maybe perhaps some students were there, but plenty of non-students as well. I mean, a very eclectic crowd, right. which I always appreciate. A lot of people kind of think that because you can see the UTC dorms or the campus is just a few blocks away, that it would be more of a college setting. Um, college bar setting, but it, it really has never been that way. Um, both my partner and I opened it when we were 26, 27 years old, 26 years old. And so we felt like um, those are that's kind of the age group that 
we interact with. And so those are the people that knew about it first. We're kind of mid-20s to early 30s. Um, and it's kind of evolved into, um, you know, all sorts of people, families during the day um, and in the afternoon. And then at night, it kind of it kind of takes on more of that kind of local, you know, watering hole feel. So you get a lot of restaurant people, bars and servers, or bartenders and servers that are getting off work will just it's always kind of that last stop before they go home for the night. Well, and I, I think, um, you know, having been in there plenty of times, uh, it feels it feels like three different places. Mm-hmm. It really does. I mean, the basement is uh, feels like a standard kind of pub. The ground floor is more of a, a restaurant feel to it. And then you've got the cocktail lounge upstairs. And what was all of that was the, the three-tiered approach there just evolving to adapt to an eclectic customer base? I think so. I think whether we whether we spoke those words or not, it was it was definitely we were open for dinner and late night only in the basement. And then when we decided, well, what's the point in waiting till four or five to open? We might as well open at eleven or nine a.m. for for brunch. Uh, we're kind of missing out on these hours, and we've got staff that want to work for us. We want people, you know, there's people who want to be in the building, so. We decided to do the brunch floor and make it more of a restaurant feel because we thought, what what person who's working downtown in a cubicle all day wants to go into a basement and have lunch on a nice day? Like we went, we wanted to, uh, you know, it makes sense to have big windows and and more of kind of that restaurant feel. And some people just don't, when they go out to eat, they don't necessarily want to be in the basement and go up to the counter and order food. Like they want to feel like, okay, we want this kind of standard. We have a server that comes and greets us and, and kind of go through those motions. Um, and so we kind of wanted to have different times where that's what people are expecting, that's what they're getting. But then also late at night, it's more casual. It's more you can get up and walk around, go inside, go outside, go upstairs, whatever you want. So, yeah, it was definitely more of adapting to the different clientele that we wanted in there, but also uh, what we just felt like made sense for the space because we knew that we couldn't make that second floor feel like the basement because it was never going to be a dark kind of pub. No matter how hard we tried, we thought it makes more sense for it to be if you have a large group of people that want to play games up there or during the day if you just want to grab lunch with some friends, it feels more open and makes more sense. Very thoughtful approach, I feel like, you know, as an experience. It's a, it's a very thoughtful experience. So you might, um, question that I had is, you know, the two of you were young, right? You, I mean, you were young when you started this business, which is awesome. You're 26. Who helped mentor you? Like, how did you navigate, you know, owning a business? You knew the restaurant side, right? You talked about growing up in that, but owning a business is is different, right, than than knowing the ins and outs of the daily activities. Right. Yeah, we are fortunate because we had both been here for so long. I mean, I I think it was my ninth year in town or so, and so having worked in those re- in those restaurants in town, I had built relationships with those restaurant owners, um, and so. Before we even opened the doors, the months leading up, we were calling um, you know, Matt Lewis, who owns the Terminal Brew House, and Hair of the Dog, and Honest Pint, and Beast and Barrel, and Mean Mug Coffee House, like guys who are really successful in this town by having built businesses. Um, we're like, hey, can you walk the space and just tell us what you think? Is this possible? Do we, you know, are we, what are we getting ourselves into? Uh, there were plenty of people uh, from coffee, from the coffee side to the bar side, um, who really helped us kind of. 
who encouraged us to do it, um, but also, you know, warned us of all the things that it takes, all of the time and the energy. And um, I know a, a good friend of mine who, um, Mike, who worked at Chat Whiskey, and uh, he, he opened up Brew House across the river. Um, he was really helpful in just kind of being like the toughest times are going to be when you open the door and nobody's there. You know, you're you're in that basement for two hours and no one has come and bought a drink or bought some food. You're going to start kind of questioning, was this the right decision? I did have a salary as a teacher. I did, you know, I had summers off. Remember those? Like, uh, And so, yeah, just having really good mentors in town, um, just kind of encouraging us to just go for it. And even though we started small enough that the risk wasn't as big as some people who have invested into really big spaces, but it was still enough that, you know, we're both kind of putting a lot of time uh, and energy into something. Well, and you play a key role in our evolving dining scene. You know, it's like uh, friends from the CVB, and I've said this on a podcast before, I mean, they they talk about this, the, the reason people come back for a second visit to Chattanooga, number one is our dining scene. And you think about that and, you know, how our dining scene has evolved. I mean, you've witnessed an evolution just over the last four years, oh, yeah. I suspect, and you play a key role in that. Any thoughts on Yeah, on I mean, it's, it's hard to... Uh... I don't really come from a, a very strong food background. I have a passion for cooking and, and for entertaining. Um, but when it comes to like new trends and new new food, kind of the food scene um, as it is, that's not really, that's never been our like top goal to be like the, on the top. But I think the whole package that we've been able to deliver where we take our food seriously and we make, and we want it to be consistent, delicious, um, kind of, uh, teamed with a great staff that really cares about the place and cares about the guest experience. I think you can have a really good food and you can have really good service. And if you can somehow bring those together um, and put them on par with what, what other people are doing in bigger cities or um, what other people have experienced, it makes people kind of remember um, coming to Chattanooga, experiencing the Bitter Alibi, experiencing places like the Flying Squirrel or um, Matilda Midnight, or some of these places where you can kind of just like sit in, get cozy, have really good food, really good drink, and and make you want to keep coming back. So yeah, it's cool to be a part of. Uh, sometimes I feel like we're not doing enough to like, uh, you know, be on par with what bigger cities are doing or what even other people are doing in town. And so it, it definitely pushes us to step it up, not get lax, and feel good about our you know 4.8 star review uh, average on something. You know, it's like no, we can still do better to. Um, make the city proud. You know, we we don't want to be on the lower end of things, but we also, um, you know, we're not patting ourselves on the back all the time, being like we finally figured it out. We've we've got the the we got it all figured out. We know exactly what we're doing. So, speaking of the city, um, on a more local level, you guys are in the neighborhood with a lot of history, um, and a place that has has changed and is changing pretty rapidly. Um, how has that affected what you've done with the restaurant? Um, and also, how have you guys sort of integrated yourself into the MLK neighborhood? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. It's a, it's a district that has a lot of history, has seen some really strong times, um, and has seen some really bad times as far as just 
businesses closing, the street not getting much love. They're feeling like the, the city has kind of gone to the north and gone to the south side of town and put a lot of money and energy into. And you can kind of feel that in the, especially the multi-generational business owners who have been there for a hundred years who are like, you know, where, where's our cool lights and where's our, you know, fresh pavement and all that. And more recently, you know, we just, we just had MLK paved a few months ago or this last month. And we've got a MLK Merchant Association that has has started a meeting every week and and it there is this kind of sense of we're not coming in and trying to change MLK like you know forget the history forget these businesses who have been open for 75 to 100 years but how can we kind of play ball together and and not you know gen, the word gentrification it always kind of seems like it it creeps its head up to like what we've what we've done or what we're a part of um, and we try to um, we try to kind of combat that idea that like what we're doing is trying to change what MLK what all the history MLK has done and what those people have been and what they've been through and also just like put up with over 75 years of nobody wanting to go on the street to now it's like oh now we've got a new brewery opened up we've got a new restaurant we've got a boutique we've got all these things and um, yeah it's something we've we want to get to know those other businesses better. We also want to um, kind of bring in an eclectic group to our place that is open and, and talk good about what other businesses are doing on the block. So it really is a team effort to, uh, you know, try to get people to not just come to the new cool bar in town, but like go hang out at the smokehouse, go hang out at the Detroit uh, G's Detroit Sausages or Mimo's Chopped Wieners. Uh, Uncle Larry's hot fish is unreal. So there's there's tons of really good food and really good like small business that is happening and has been happening. So it's cool to be a part in bringing more of these together. And if you haven't driven down MLK lately, I mean, it really looks nice. Uh, the infrastructure has seen a, a solid improvement. And so, yeah, it's, and it's great to see the depth and the breadth of the businesses along that key corridor for our city and our downtown. Totally. River City Company's been been a big help um, with signage. They did a sign grant. So we have, everyone's got a fresh new sign, which uh, just, yeah, it's, it's one of those costs that most people are like, no, we'll just do some corrugated plastic or, and, you know, it's a hundred bucks and we'll throw it on the side of the building. And so it's nice to be able to have these at night you're driving through and everything's lit up and um, everything's done professionally. And it, and it makes the whole block feel definitely like we have it together, even if we may not. It just still makes people feel like we do, so that's cool. Well, that cohesion's really important. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. This has been enlightening, for sure. Um, the Bitter Alibi is a great place. If you haven't visited, you should. Right, right downtown along MLK near the Bessie Smith Cultural Center. Uh, again, Jason Bowers, co-owner of The Bitter Alibi, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, Jason, thanks for being a risk taker and starting a business here in Chattanooga and being um, you know, a, a breath of light for others to follow in your way. Thank totally. you. Of course. Thank you. We will see you all next time on Chattanooga Works. Chattanooga Works.